0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, a prolific writer and best-selling author, Diane Fanning, joins me in the interrogation room just to clear a few things up. Diane's written 16 books on true crime. 11 mystery novels, including the Lucinda Pierce detective series, four anthologies, and two digital short stories. Diane studied chemistry in high school and at Lynchburg College, and then began writing professionally for an ad agency. While busy earning more than seven Addy Awards for her day job, she moonlighted by composing freelance magazine articles and personal essays. Diane's fictional work has been nominated for an Edgar Award in the Innocence Project recognized her non-fiction work by bestowing upon her the Defender of the Innocent Award. Diane's latest true crime, called Death on a River, releases at bookstores and an internet near you on April 30th. This release details the death of Vincent Viafor and the subsequent investigation into his fiance's potential part in his demise. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Diane. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Gavin. Nice to be here.
0: Now, For readers new, new to you as, as an author, what would you like them to know about this upcoming release, Death on a River?
1: Well, as in um, all of my true crime books, I try to focus most on the people involved because that is what changes so much between crime to crime. Mm-hmm. You never know uh, what you're going to find out from those people, whether you're talking about the victim, the perpetrator, The family members, the investigators. There's a list of characters that always bring a new perspective to every case.
0: Yeah, and this this one in particular, um, out out west uh, where where I live, it didn't garner a lot of attention for a long time. But for you know the you know the few days, the few weeks of the initial investigation, um, this was uh, caught a lot of attention. And then it just kind of disappeared off uh, off of our radar out here. And I'm just about finished with the book now. And I'm really pretty amazed by the number of twists and um, I don't want to spoil anything, but the <laughs> the number of twists and, and the directions that this investigation took and what I fear the outcome is going to be. Did any of this surprise you as you were putting this book together? Yes, very much. Um, it, was it,
1: by the time you get to the end of a story, you have developed feelings for uh, some of the people there, and you see things going in a way that will not make them happy, it's bullying, mm-hmm. really, and and in that, and it, that was very much the case here. And, um, I do not think. Uh, that justice was served very well when it came to an end.
0: And that's kind of the conclusion I'm coming to as this is, is closing out. Um, I think I'm going to be disappointed um, in, in the reality, um, you know, and I, I, that's, you know, for all of the, all of the things that are, are justice system and the rules of evidence and the, the structure of our legal system for all the things that it does well, occasionally to me, there are really glaring examples of its failures. And I, 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 I fear this is going to be one of them. Um, but you know, there's so many points to this that I, it's uh, really is stranger than fiction. And I, I would have a hard time putting something like this together and making it believable, but this has all really happened.
1: Yes, and you know, it's our justice system is not perfect because it's run by humans. Yes, and, um, and that that is why on on both sides of the ledger, you you have injustice from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: there
1: there are people who serve time in jail for crimes, in your life. and then there's people who just walk away, whistling in the trees, and yes. you go, "Wow, that's so wrong."
0: Now, that actually brings me to my, a, very nice, a very nice segue to my, my next question, because you, you've been writing true crime for a number of years, and uh, you've covered some of the most prominent murder cases in recent history, including Casey Anthony and her daughter Kaylee. Uh, what, what first inspired you to start writing these stories and, and from my opinion, doing a, kind of a lot of follow-up investigation on these?
1: all started actually, Gavin, when I was nine years old. I had out walking with a friend to our neighborhood, which was half rural and half suburban. And we were going to a rural section, and this man pulled up in his car and asked for directions. We were trying to tell him where to go, and he said, well, would you show me on this map? And I went over towards his car, and he opened the door, and instead of a map, he was exposing himself. Oh, no. That yeah and he grabbed hold of my upper arm and started pulling on me and I was resisting as much as I could but I was a pretty little kid
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um just then another car came over the hill and laid on his horn at that point the guy let go of my arm and drove off with his car door still open at that time I was wow. a big fan of the uh dragnet reruns on daytime TV and I knew they wanted me to do. So I memorized that license plate. I went home. My mother called the police and license plate number. They stopped that man. And in the trunk of his car, found evidence that he had been responsible for the sexual assault and murder of an eight year old girl
0: month before. Oh my God.
1: And so uh, from then on, I had intense curiosity Uh, for me. I wanted to know, why did he pick me? Yes. And I wanted to know, how could anybody do that? So I started reading in my spare time. And, and some of the books I got from the library were way, way over my head. But I plugged through them anyway. Uh, and I just had a, a lot of interest in in the criminal mind. And uh, then one day, I was <clears throat> sitting home alone, flipping through channels on TV. And I stumbled across the story of this little girl named Crystal Searles and she instantly became my hero. She watched a serial killer kill her best friend, slit her throat and leave her for dead. She got up, went for help. She couldn't speak. She was taken into surgery immediately after being airlifted to a hospital. And when she came around from the surgery, she... I motioned for a pencil and paper and wrote, get the police. The police came. They brought a forensic artist. That little girl, who still couldn't speak, was able to communicate well enough that I was exactly who it was that had committed that crime. Wow. And that ended a 20-year murder spree. This little girl wow. was responsible for stopping serial killer. Cells and tracks. I just was overcome with emotion about this girl. I mean, she yes. did what I did times one hundred, and so I, I just had to write about it. I had to write about what she went through, and that's how I ended up getting an agent and then a contract, and that was the first one.
0: Wow, that's that's incredible. I'm, I really. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. There, there are, I think a number of folks uh, that in the course of their life have interaction or have some, some occasion to have something like this um, happen to them or nearly happen to them. And almost no one gets out of life without, without trauma. And I'm really grateful that, that in this case, this turned out, out to be something really positive that you're able to, uh, able to use as a, as a positive impact on the world around you, rather than a, a a negative crutch or a fear, and I'm I'm really grateful for that.
1: Well, you know, I and I think probably because I was um, compelled to find out answers, and that was the most important thing to me, rather than um, hiding somewhere under a mm-hmm. rock. You know, it was like I wanted answers, I wanted to understand. And um, the, the wonderful thing about this book is not only did it get my career started as a writer, but it also um, it also was the book that got a, a wrongfully convicted woman, Julie Ray, a new trial. Ultimately, she was found not guilty, and then she got a c- certificate of actual innocence from the of uh, State of Illinois, wow. So, it it did a lot of good things for me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's that's one of the things. You know, especially working um, working as a cop. I you know I, I think the the public sees us you know out and about trying to you know put put you know the the bad man away and trying to get people convicted. Um, and to me the you know, that's only part of it, right? I mean, we also have to exonerate, um, folks who are, you know, initially an investigative lead or a person of interest. Um, and the idea of, of putting an innocent person in jail or, or especially in prison is horrifying to me. Um, I, I think I would probably feel, uh, even more elation it having helped free an innocent person than having convicted um a guilty one. And I, I'm I'm glad that, that this all worked out so well.
1: Yeah, I you know, most of the cops I've I've interacted with, I would say that they would feel the same way, that they mm-hmm. um would would want justice and truth over anything else. Yes. Unfortunately, I have found some district attorneys who will not admit that they may have made a mistake. Yes. And uh, I, that, that kind of, it, it angers me when it's like yes. right there in your face.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I dislike uh, on the one hand that the, the DA's office is, you know, a political position because they are elected. Um, yes. And I personally, um, I'm a, a bit of a an, an ideologue, I guess. And I think that everyone in elected office who is in public service—visualize uh, my air quotes right now—but <laughs> in public service, huh. that they would uphold their oath of office with the same um, vigil and 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 dedication that I upheld mine. And I, I'm continually disappointed by that in the public public sphere, with you know DAs who want you know to maintain a high conviction rate, you know going into the next election cycle so they can say they had you know a 92% conviction rate, um, when the important thing is justice, not convictions. Um, convictions are a byproduct of justice when necessary, but that's not the end goal. And for people to be unwilling to admit they made a mistake or that they were wrong or that even if all the evidence pointed to the wrong guy and nothing wrong was committed but still the wrong person went to jail, that still is a wrong that needs to be rectified. And yeah. you know, I would have a lot more respect and admiration for someone who's willing to have an honest dialogue about it than to hide behind the case and you know, well, the jury said that you know, uh, the jury made their decision.
1: Yes, and it's really it's really troubling when a second trial is ordered, and the jury comes back and says that the person's not guilty.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you've got a DA who, after the first trial, when a guilty verdict was given, he said, "Well, you just gotta you gotta listen to the judge, the jury. You gotta <laughs> yes. listen." To the jury. And then when the yeah. the uh, perpetrator is found to no longer be a perpetrator and is acquitted at trial, mm-hmm. he, thing. The DA goes, Oh, well, the jury got it wrong. Well I'm sorry. You can't you can't have it both ways.
0: No. No, you can't. And you know, I think whether you're whatever role you have in the criminal justice system, uh at least on the prosecution side, um, I don't think you can become so emotionally invested in in a case or an outcome that you get blinded by it. You know, we're from my position, uh, my perspective, we're, we're just supposed to be finders of fact, um, and present facts, then let people draw their own conclusions. But, um, I kind of fear in, in some ways, some DAs or some cops, mostly DAs, and, and my, I shouldn't just say DAs, prosecutors, um, right. tend to get, you know, a little bit blinded by the, the, uh, the conviction goal rather than justice goal. And, you know, it's yeah. It, and if
1: most of them uh, would look in their state constitutions, there is probably a clear spelling out of what they're supposed to be doing, and mm-hmm. that's seeking truth and securing justice.
0: Yeah. Now, when when you start working on a uh, on a book, what is your what is your process like for um, for putting one of these one of these true crimes together?
1: The first thing I want to do is find names. And um, all the names, like the, the official investigators, the DA, uh, the, the other people that are a part of the story or a part of the story of the victim's life or mm-hmm. the traitor's life. And um, to, to gather just as many names as I can so that I can get hold of them. And then one of the last questions I always ask somebody when I'm doing an interview is, uh, who else do you think I should talk to? Yes, And that usually yields a lot. And so that's, that is how I it started. It's always with the people. Um, you can't really rely on uh, press reports, because mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, they're, they're going for a deadline. And their deadline means they've got to turn in the story at a certain time. Well, if the, if law enforcement is withholding some information to protect their investigation, you're mm-hmm. going to get something that isn't quite accurate. Yes, in the newspaper, so um you know it, having more time to be able to write it things and uh, find find those problems uh that wouldn't be noticed by someone working day to day
0: when you're when you are going through this and looking at the the information from press reports from uh, from police reports and then you know presumably the the, the trial. How do you deal with the information that's in the police report, but for whatever reason, whether it was excluded um, uh, by rules of evidence or the prosecutor didn't bring it in, how do you deal with piece of information you learned from the investigation that didn't influence the jury's decision?
1: Well, I, I still think that information is important. And even if it's wrong, um, like in book, there was a... Uh, Someone who worked for a sheriff's department who had sworn he saw the perpetrator at a certain place at a certain time. Mm -hmm. Well, that was reported. That even came out on 48 Hours. But it turned out it wasn't true. It wasn't accurate. He was mistaken. So um, you've got... that's all part of the story. The the blind alleys that investigators go down is really, to me, part of the story. And it, it explains and defines a an investigation. And when you're seeking truth, you're going to stumble across a lot of obstacles, mm-hmm. because yeah. a lot of times people don't want truth to come out.
0: <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 You know, even even if they don't have direct involvement, it's it's amazing to me how many times people will, you know, be unwilling to to be objective or to to say a bad thing about someone they know because, you know, they don't want it getting back to, you know, this person that they had something negative to say, even if it's not related to the case. Um you know, it's it's yeah. very difficult. Yeah. You know. Whole whole lot of psychology at play here.
1: Um Yeah, and then and then you've run across other people and they're like well, listen, um, she wasn't perfect, you know, the victim. She wasn't perfect. Uh-huh. Tell you what problems she had because that is part of what made her who she is. And mm-hmm. and they, they get that. And and just a lot of times people will put themselves in a bad place to allow themselves to be victimized. Uh-huh. Um, and that doesn't mean they should be, but that no. they, they do that. So that's an important part of the story because what that story tells us people who read about it is this is something you got to watch for because it's something that's going to get you into trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think there, oftentimes there is a, uh, a kind of a cautionary tale in, in these things, you know, in, in my experience, um, random crime, like truly random crime is, is fairly rare. It still exists and still happens just as, uh, as your interaction with, uh, Uh, with the, um, the, 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 yes, thank you. Um, so it, you know, it can't be excluded, but, um, you know, for the most part, uh, a lot of, a lot of us end up being victimized by our decisions. Um, not that, you know, we should be victimized or, you know, we deserve to be, but, you know, most of the people who harm us are known to us. Um, you know, a lot of the things that happen, catastrophe is usually the result of, you know, a cascade of events, not necessarily a, a, a lightning strike, although lightning strikes happen. Um, and, you know, it makes for, you know, a very complicated and, and weaving tale a lot of times to, to piece these things together and tell the true three-dimensional story of these people.
1: Yeah, and that's why investigators... Um, even in random crimes will start first looking at the people closest to the victim because that 's logically where it came from and it isn't until they eliminate those people and find out they couldn't have done it that they mm-hmm. start moving out further afield now
0: when you're looking at getting a uh, getting all your source material and getting uh, sorting on a new project. I would imagine you have to go through a whole lot of FOIA requests, the Freedom of Information Act requests, um, interviewing the folks involved and trying to convince them to help, help get the truth out. How, how much time goes into one of these books? Is it months, is it years?
1: You know, it depends on the book. It depends on where the crime occurs. There are a lot of jurisdictions that that are pretty free with information mm-hmm. so that um for example in one there was a, a district attorney who uh, he his attitude was once we give the evidence to the defense then we have given it to the enemy therefore we should give it to everyone so mm-hmm. when you have that kind of situation you can get everything, and, and move forward. Um, the thing that makes it most difficult for me is when I'm working on a case in a jurisdiction where they will not allow the investigators to speak to anyone.
0: Wow. Yes.
1: Yeah. Then that's hard because they, they're what it's all about as far as the investigative part of finding out who committed this crime, and um, it, it's. I think I do a much better job when I can talk directly to the person in charge of that case but it always doesn't happen:
0: yeah you know there's that's something that I think a lot of people might not appreciate is that as, as finders of, of fact um, truth being relative you know we're supposed to cops are supposed to document fact um, and so generally we can't put in a report I really think that this guy did it I really think that he right. was involved. Right. All they can document are the reasons that they think that, but you generally can't even make that statement. So and so is continues to be a person of interest in this case, but you know we're out of leads, or you know we just could never prove it. Um, that doesn't actually get written, so I would imagine it's really hard for you if you can't have that conversation about what happened off the record.
1: Yeah, I mean there like as a storyteller there's important details that that really matter to me. Like, okay, well they came in and they sprayed this stuff off uh, to to look for blood. What did it smell like? I mean, you know, you gotta have somebody yeah. there to tell you what it smelled like. Um and then on the other hand, it's it's really um I think my readers really like it when I can tell them that, the, that according to the investigator, it was at this point in the investigation mm-hmm. that suddenly the light went on and they saw exactly what happened. But those points are different places for every investigator. So yes. you've got, you know, it, that's a real interesting thing to be able to see and to understand. And a lot of times, you know, they, they'll get to a point where, oh, it could have been this guy. And they'll be right in that case and, and they move forward from there in that direction. But what, what made that light go on? And that's always very interesting, I think.
0: Now as, as someone who's read a lot of police reports in your time, I, I have, um, from a, especially my time as a, as a cop trainer, I have a lot of pet peeves about the way that cops write reports in the language. That they use. <laughs> um, I think a lot of times, you know, we have this cultural need to make ourselves sound more official or more, um, sometimes even more intelligent than we actually are. Right. Like, so a few of mine, like I, I really dislike when cops, you know, write that they observed something, right? Like Marie Curie observed the effects of radiation. Cops don't observe anything. You know, we see a motorcycle go down the street Um, do do you have any pet peeves that you've developed over time with reading all these police reports?
1: Um, you know, I, it's the, the language sometimes seems, um, put on like that, that observed, Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just speak to me like you'd speak to me, do that in the report. That would make sense. And I guess the only other thing is, I mean, not in police reports so much, but in autopsy reports. They, those are the ones that make me nuts, wow. um, because they're like so. They, it's like they're trying to go over everyone's head, and I'm going <laughs> really. <laughs> you know, it's like really. Make it simple.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we already know you have at least an MD. Calm down. You know, you have credentials. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, how do you see the role of of true crime writers in our society? Are you, are you here to feed America's guilty pleasures, uh, obsession with crime, or do you believe there's something more to your work?
1: I think there's there's a lot more. Um, I I know there are some true crime books who are more focused on the uh, minutia of the actual crime. Mm-hmm. I'm more focused on the people. And when you focus on the people, you uncover the red flags. Like I've done a number about spousal murders and mm-hmm. you start seeing what goes wrong in a relationship with the, the victim who is up close to it, can't see it, yes. but you can see those red flags. And I have talked a lot, even to high school students about red flags in relationships yes. because there there is a consistency in them that Mm -hmm. that runs through time and time again when there is danger and there is trouble. And if a person that's close to a situation can't see it, hopefully, if they know about it, their friends or other family members can go, you know, you're in trouble here. You're not safe. And the fact of the matter is that women, from the time they decide that they're going to leave a relationship, the time that they actually do it. And from as much as two years afterwards, that is mm-hmm. the most risk-filled time of their whole lives. Yes. And they need to, they need to know that they need to have an awareness of it. And I think that a lot of my books have given that information to people.
0: Yeah. I, I think that, you know, for, for my perspective, um, I think there are a few really important positions in, in our society, um, in relation to criminal behavior. And, you know, obviously I have a, a real strong bias for cops, but, um, defense attorneys, investigative journalists, and I would add true crime authors, um, really have a, to me, a critical role because, um, there's no one who's going to be able to explain the complexity of the criminal justice system or the complexity of a single investigation better than someone who can look at it in hindsight with all of the information available, um, not just what was a trial or just what got out to the press. Uh, But also, as you mentioned, there are consistencies, there are patterns of behavior in um, domestic abuse and in, um, in a lot of uh, violence among families that when you start, seeing those indications you can at least hopefully maybe you know divert this thing get off the freeway do something that um you can uh that you can do avoid that outcome now in terms of your writing were who was who was your first writing mentor and how did that relationship come about
1: my first writing mentor was another true crime writer who um her, Susie Spencer, who encouraged me to go forward. when I told her I wanted to do what she does, and uh, but I had a full-time job and I had kids, so how could yes. I do that? And she said, pick a case that's already gone to trial because then you can go by the records and you can take time and pull it together. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, the first thing I did when I ran across this story of Crystal Searles was I sat down and wrote a chapter and I sent it to her and I said, do I have what it takes? Do you think? Mm-hmm. And she was very encouraging and, and hooked me up um, with my agent, Jane Distel,
0: well, who
1: after 18 years is still my agent. So well. that was uh, uh that was a very good thing. And she, she helped me get through those uh, jitters over that first book coming out.
0: Now the uh, getting toward our out of respect for your time, getting toward the, the, the end here, I've got a, a few that I questions that I ask of just about everyone. Uh, who's your favorite fictional detective or investigator?
1: That would be Dave robicho in the, the James Lee mm-hmm. Burke book. And also, my second favorite would be um, Lucas Davenport in the John Sanford books.
0: They uh, both got nods on this, uh, on this question before, and I, keeping, that, keeping that answer in mind, uh, God forbid it should come to pass, Diane, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want on the case? You can have anyone.
1: I'll take Dave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, fantastic. Dave gets another nod. I think uh, I either think...
1: that, either that, or if I could have a real one.
0: Yes. There's
1: Johnny <laughs> Allen. Johnny Allen, and the te- he's a retired okay. Texas Ranger. He is fabulous.
0: Fantastic. It, maybe maybe they can partner up. <laughs> Uh, where, where can readers uh, connect with you and your works, maybe follow a blog or even uh, maybe even turn you on to your next bestseller?
1: Well, um, I have a website, which is just, uh, you know, HTTP dot uh, colon forward slashes, and then it's com. So that's really easy. You don't even have to have the www's in there. And, um, I have on that page, I went, well, it's a bunch of pages, but on that site, I have a sample chapter of all my books. I've got um, uh, a, a blog. I've also got sign up for my newsletter So and a connection to my
0: email. So you can go there and connect with me in any way you want to. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you uh, making time to uh, join me, Diane, and sharing your process and your experience and your stories with us. Um, I'm really hoping for all the best success for you on this latest one, Death on a River. I think it's going to be wildly successful, and I think readers are going to tremendously enjoy it. I'm looking forward to to, uh, hearing a lot more of your feedback on it.
1: Well, terrific. It's nice talking to you, Gavin, and uh, let me know if you ever need me again.
0: Fantastic. Well, you've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been best-selling true crime and mystery fiction author, Diane Fanning. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.